good sign that something's going on. So great job, uh, pastorally, certainly encouraging. Well, let's pray one more time before we study God's Word. Father, thank you for the kids, and thank you for the opportunity we have to pour our lives into them. Thank you that salvation doesn't depend upon us, because while we do want to do a good job with the kids, we know that we fall short. Lord, thank you for the privilege we do have of proclaiming Christ to them and by pointing them to him and not to ourselves or to anyone else. You are exceedingly kind to us and gracious, and we're thankful for the salvation that is found in Jesus. Uh, May the things we talk about this morning help us to see his significance uh, all the more that we would love our Savior as we've been singing about this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there have been surveys done now for years and years in America, and they keep coming back with essentially the same conclusion, and that is that most Americans believe in hell. Most Americans believe in hell. Now, maybe that's going to change. I wouldn't be surprised if it changes, but for the most part, time and time again, most Americans believe in hell. What's interesting about those same kinds of surveys is that the overwhelming majority, if not everyone who says, I believe in hell, also says they don't believe they're going there. So most Americans believe in hell. Most Americans don't believe they're going there. Kind of interesting. Perhaps that's because we're at a place where in pop culture right now, we believe there's one prerequisite for avoiding hell. Put another way, there's one prerequisite for gaining heaven. And that one prerequisite is, according to popular culture, is death. If you die, you go to heaven. Kind of bizarre. But listen to how people talk. As long as you die, you go to heaven. We hear people say, without exception, they say, well, at least she's in a better place now. When haven't you heard that when someone dies? Or we hear after there's been significant suffering, and there is certainly significant suffering at times, you hear, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. The assumption is, because when you die, you go to heaven, because that's the prerequisite. Well, while this is not appropriate to bring up at dinner parties or barbecues, I would like to pose the question, what if that's not true? What if suffering in this life is nothing compared to the suffering you will experience when you breathe your last breath? What if the suffering in this life is grace and mercy in comparison to what you will experience when you breathe your last breath? What if? Can I ask that question in church? There was a time when that's what you would expect to hear asked in church. That time is gone. But I'm going to do it because this is a Christian church. And we believe that Christ spoke the truth. Therefore, we believe, as Jesus believed, we believe that the Bible is true. And the Bible talks about hell. The Bible talks about eternal suffering. It talks about conscious torment that will last forever and ever on a far different scale from the real suffering we experience in the life here and now. Isn't it weird? Isn't it strange? Isn't it peculiar that I feel uncomfortable right now talking about hell in church? 
such as our culture. If I said, well, let's all be nice because God is nice and we're all nice and isn't that nice? Well, I would feel pretty good about that because that's what's expected, not only at dinner parties and at barbecues, but that's what's expected in church. But I just want to remind you that this is a Christian church. We want to hear from Jesus today what he says about heaven and what he says about hell. And if that makes us uncomfortable, and it does, then so be it. Because what we want to do is do what God said from heaven. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so we're going to listen to Jesus today about the afterlife. And I trust it will be good to do and helpful and not distasteful, but appropriate. And that brings us to this series we're doing, I guess it's a mini-series, called Hell Matters. Hell Matters, and we're looking at seven different headings regarding hell. And I'll preview those or review those for you now if you're taking notes. We've looked at the first two. Number one, the definiteness of hell the definiteness of hell. Number two, the definition of hell. And we looked at those a couple of weeks ago. The definiteness, the definition. Today we're going to look at three, four, and five. Number three, the description of hell. The description of hell. Number four, the despot or the ruler of hell. And number five, the duration of hell. So we're going to talk about what hell is. We're going to talk about who's in charge. We're going to talk about how long it lasts. Next Sunday, we'll look at the degrees of punishment in hell. And then finally, we'll look at number seven. And I'm grasping for another D word, as you will notice. The denizens of hell or the inhabitants of hell. Who's in hell? That's the plan. I'm not going to try to uh, manipulate you today emotionally. I try not to do that ever. I'm not very good at it, to be honest. But my goal is not to manipulate you. My goal is to not be um, overly emotional. My goal is to have us hear from Jesus. But, but I have to tell you that it should be an emotional issue. If this is real, that what we're talking about here, It should stir our our emotions. It should stir mine as as a pastor who's been called to preach the word of Christ. It should stir you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because your heart will fill with greater gratitude than you ever had before because you're not going to get what you deserve. It should stir you emotionally if you're not a believer. Because as sure as Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's returning to judge, read Acts 17. And so this will be emotional in that sense. Well, let's look at number three, the description of hell. The description of hell. And if you would turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 25, we'll be in Matthew 25 on a couple of occasions. So you want to keep a marker there if you would, if you're New to the Bible, you can find a table of contents in your Bible that we gave to you today. And you can find Matthew. It's the the gospel account, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, Jesus' disciple. And in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks rather pointedly about hell. I can give you a preview and tell you what we won't find. As we talk about a description of hell, what we won't find is we won't find 
hell as the place where everyone goes to be with their friends. What we won't find is the place where they serve beer, as the flop movie in 2009 said, uh, was titled, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Uh, we won't find that. One could only wish that would be the case. What we won't find is that hell is a mere state of mind. What we won't find is that hell is something you can experience now when you're between jobs or fighting an illness, as bad as those things might really be. What we will find is that hell is a place of punishment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 says this, quoting Jesus. Let's obey God now and listen to Jesus. It says in verse 46 of Matthew 25, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So eternal it's a place of punishment without question. It is according to the mouth of none other than Jesus. It's not a manuscript that's debated. It's not, did he really say this? And is this actually not belonging in the Bible or something like that? The manuscript evidence is there. This is what Jesus has to say. His apostles will corroborate or collaborate or corroborate, I guess is the right word. Eternal punishment. It's a place of torment. Uh, I want you to turn to one other passage for now, and that would be Revelation chapter 14. Um, If you keep a marker in in Matthew 25, and then we'll go to Revelation 14 and kind of go back and forth a little bit. But it's not only punishment, it's a place of torment, which is also emphasizing the the torment aspect. I mentioned this last time, but I'm going to say it again, and, and it's important that we remember, hell is not a place for reform. We might think of our system of, incarceration now is something where we're going to actually change people's lives and take them through programs and, and, and turn them into responsible citizens. And it's not a place of reformation. It's a place of punishment. It says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, he, the one who worships the beast, or the one who would be the unbeliever, uh, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire. So it's a place of torment and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So we see it's a place of torment. It's also a place of outer darkness. If you go back to Matthew again, Matthew 22, we see it spelled out that it's a place. It is a place. Matthew 22, verse 13 says, Then the king said to the attendants, verse 13 there, it's an important one because it says place, not just a state of mind. Verse 13, Bind them hand and foot and cast them into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth kind of bizarre. I can't get my mind around it. It's outer darkness, um, and yet there's a a flame there, and I don't know exactly how that works, but that's what the data is having us to believe. It's a place of eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's kind of an interesting one because we say, well, hell is where bad people go. You know, people like the devil. That's right. And human beings who don't believe in Christ. That's where bad people go. Interesting. It's a place of unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 43 says it's the the unquenchable fire. 
It's a place of destruction, according to 2 Thessalonians uh, 1.9, Philippians 3. Listen to Philippians 3.18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. What's so unsettling about that is Paul in Philippians 3 isn't talking about atheists. He's talking about people who profess to know the one true God but don't believe the gospel. Destruction. This is very unsettling. It's a place place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What what can you say? What, what, What else do I say? My, my prayer this morning was something to the effect, God, help me to let the text speak. And God, bring conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the text of your word. I don't know what else to say. It's a place of torment. It's a place of punishment. It's a bad place. It's extreme. And you say, but doesn't the Bible use metaphors? I absolutely know it uses metaphors. I don't always know where the metaphors start and where they end. But one thing's for certain, when you look at the narratives, he's not trying to use metaphor for nothing. He's talking about a place that lasts forever. Again, I, 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 can't, I can't manipulate you. This is a weighty issue. This isn't mean to talk about. Mean would be, perverted would be, Jesus spoke of such a place with utter sobriety and frequency, but let's pretend like he didn't. How perverted is that? I need a break, so I'm going to tell a story. (laughs) I remember I was a brand new Christian, early 20s, um, still in college. Molly and I are dating, and I was so excited, so excited to learn the gospel, so excited to, to know that I don't know anything, having thought I knew everything. I know nothing about the Bible other than what I'm just learning and devouring. And this is so exciting to think that my sins are forgiven and to think that God has accepted me in Christ. And I'm just so excited. And the pastor of the church where Molly grew up uh, knew something of this. And uh, he invited Molly and I to be sponsors for the weekend for their confirmation class their final confirmation weekend retreat, getting ready to go and be confirmed before the church as members on Sunday morning. And so I was asking, I said, sure. Opportunity to talk about Jesus, to talk about the Bible with junior high kids? Absolutely. And so we went and um, talking to the students about the questions you're supposed to go through and things about the Bible, things they were going to affirm. And we were having a great time. And... uh, I don't know why, but some of the students started talking about hell. And, and they talked about how they didn't believe in hell. 
And I had like a 14 alarm fire going off in my head. I thought, what? I was so alarmed. I couldn't believe it. I was so concerned. I thought, this is, this is horrible. They're gonna, they, they can't be confirmed on Sunday. I didn't even know what confirmation was, but anyway. <laughs> but it seemed like a good thing. And so I immediately went over to the pastor, very concerned after talking to these kids. Um, let's call him Rick, because that was his name. Okay? <laughs> I said, Rick, we have a huge problem. He said, well, what? You know, are there ants in the bedrooms or what? I mean, that would be a problem, I guess. What? I, I said, I was talking to these kids and they were talking about hell. And, and then before you know it, they, they don't believe in hell. This is horrible. What's going to happen? Because they can't be confirmed. They don't believe in hell. And then I got the pat on the head. Pat, pat. Don't you know and understand that hell means a lot of different things to different people? And according to some theologians, some people are in hell right now in their trials. Did I say we'll call him Rick because that's his name? Yeah, we will. That was my first introduction to theological liberalism. That was my first introduction to Rickianity because it wasn't Christianity. Because when you listen to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Father told us to, He speaks frequently of hell as a place in the future where people will suffer, where the worm never dies, where the flame never extinguishes, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place that was designed for Satan and his rebellious minions. Make no mistake about it. As we look at the data, hell, according to Jesus, who's the founder of our religion, is real. It's real. Now, for years, I would say that's Protestant liberalism. They, they're in charge. It's their religion to begin with. They call it Christianity. They just hijack the name. It's not real. But the strange thing is, here now, 20-some years later, based upon the books that are sold and published and sold at the evangelical bookstore, Rick now, if that would be his name, could be pastoring a Bible church. Rick now is not a Protestant liberal in this hypothetical scenario. He's an evangelical. He's one of us. That's how we talk now. We certainly talk that way. Look what the best-selling books are. You say, why are you bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because I'm trying to remind you trying to remind you that we have a religion called Christianity where Jesus Christ speaks and we say, Amen. We say, Yes, Lord. That's right. As uncomfortable as it makes us. Because that's what is honoring to Him. That's what's genuine. That's what's true. That's what has integrity. I like to say it, and I say it, too much. It's a free country. You can start your own religion if you'd like to. I wouldn't advise it. 
But the name Christian has already been taken. And as troubling and unsettling as it is to us, and it is, according to Christianity, biblical and historically, hell is real and people like you go there. Thankfully, that's not how the story ends. And people like you and people like me go to heaven. But we've got to understand the severity of sin if we're ever going to understand the significance of the Savior. That's what we're trying to do here. And I hope it's helpful. I hope it's helpful. I don't want to speak in a mean-spirited way. I don't want you to speak in a mean-spirited way. I want to show love for my neighbor. I want you to show love for your neighbor. If you drive by a severe accident and nobody else is around and you choose to ignore it because it just wouldn't be very convenient to stop and help them, how perverse is that? Well, if I stop and help, then they they might not want my help. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. If hell is real and Christianity says it is and Jesus says it is on multiple occasions, then we would want to tell people about hell. You know, Jesus, Jesus was to the point where if, when a natural disaster happened, Jesus would say, lesson learned, you too will die someday. Repent, lest you die like those folks died and you go to hell. That's unthinkable today when a natural disaster happens and a bunch of people die. But that's exactly how Jesus functioned because he believed it was real. And remember, he's the one that was given to us because God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. He, the great loving Savior, loves you so much that he talks about eternal condemnation. So you don't face it. So I don't face it. Let's now talk Number four, about the despot or the ruler of hell. And we're just going to look at one verse. And it's back to Revelation 14. And if you think it just got lighter, it didn't. Revelation 14 just sort of sucks the the, the remaining air out of the room. And we're going to see what really makes hell, hell. What makes hell so hellacious? What makes it so severe? What makes it so bad? Well, Revelation chapter 14.10 gives us an indicator of what makes hell so bad. In Revelation 14.10, we've already looked at it once today, but we're going to look at it again, referring to the unbeliever, the one who worships the beast. In verse 10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, so it's not cut by water or watered down. It's full, undiluted, into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. And, and here you go, in the presence of the Lamb. The person in hell could only wish that Satan was in charge. Who's in charge of hell? The sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, whom before whom every knee will bow and every, t- uh, every tongue will confess. Philippians chapter 2. 
They're there suffering, and they're there suffering in the presence of none other than the Lamb. What makes hell so hellacious is the fact that Jesus is in charge. I realize this messes up a lot of art. It messes up a lot of mythology. But King Jesus is king. He is center to it all. Now remember, when he came into this world the first time, he even himself said he didn't come to judge. But if you keep reading in the narrative, he is going to come and he's going to judge, most certainly. Now there's a great side to this. You've got to keep all this image in mind. He's the sovereign one. He's the king. He's the one who's going to execute judgment. The great side is what we learn about in Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2 with me, if you would. It is one of my very, very favorite passages. Uh, Psalm 2 is, is, is deluxe and, and grand because it takes both of these images of Jesus. And by the way, Psalm 2 is referenced in the New Testament, I don't know how many times in relationship to Jesus. But it takes both of these images, the image of Jesus as righteous judge and Jesus as Savior, and it, it puts both images in the same verse. It's awesome. Psalm 2.12 is the psalm, uh, and it would be nice if I turned there too. Um, but in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, it says, kiss the, sh- kiss the Son, or worship the Son, pay homage to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that great? Kiss the son. The very one who makes hell, hell because he's the judge. Because even right here in our verse, you've got his anger. You have his wrath that is kindled like a flame. The very same one is the one who is our refuge at the end of the verse. That's the right biblical image of Jesus. It might be a Sunday school lesson spoiler times 10. But let's let the truth of God's word inform our understanding. What's the solution to avoiding an eternal hell being administered by the eternal son of God? It's clinging to the son for salvation. You find refuge in him. You find safety in him. Kiss the sun. It's a great image. He's the only one that can protect you from his own power. It's magnificent. It's a great gospel kind of text. Refuge in the sun. Kissing the sun. Paying homage to the sun. Now let's talk about the duration of hell. The duration of hell. If you want to turn back to Matthew 25, and by way of preparation as we talk about how long hell is going to last, I'm going to read an excerpt by a man named Clark Pinnock who recently died, but who wrote venomously against the God of the Bible in the name of Christianity. And uh, I want to read this quote to you. 
so you can get an understanding of, again, Protestant liberalism, but this is what's become normal now. Let me say, Pinnock says, at the outset, that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness, whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? As Kung appropriately asks, what would we think of a human being who satisfied his thirst for revenge so implacably and insatiably? And then Pinnock goes on to say, everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. We're going to see the Bible teaches that hell lasts forever. Mark Pinnock says this is simply intolerable. This is immoral. You know what? I would agree with Clark Pinnock. If Clark Pinnock were God, I would agree with Clark Pinnock if God were not the creator of the universe in charge, in control, as God, who has the freedom to act like God, who, make, who made good laws and spelled out from the very beginning what happens when you violate his law. Which causes me to not believe Clark Pinnock. It's Pinnockanity. It's his own version. Even trying to take God's basis for morality and turning it around and aiming it like a gun at God. How dare you act like God with laws? It's bizarre. But again, you have a decision. Are you a Christian? You believe Jesus? Jesus talked about the eternality of hell. We'll talk more about why it's an eternality. But let's look at the data now. Leaving that quotation from Pinnock, and I mention it today because, yeah, that's theological liberalism, but that sounds like evangelicalism today based upon buying trends. Matthew twenty-five forty-six, And these will go away into eternal, ionion in the Greek New Testament, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal ionion life. And I'll say what's been said a bazillion times, but it's worth saying, and that is, as sure as hell is forever, heaven is forever. Put it the other way, maybe for more effect, as sure as heaven is forever, hell is forever. And what happens is you get more than you bargained for if you say, I don't believe in an eternal hell. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus puts the puts both of them in the same verse. 
As sure as one is, the other is. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, I'll just read it. It says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What's interesting about that verse, and I'm not going to take the time to go into it in the details now, but that's interesting because earlier we saw that Jesus, they're in the presence of the Lamb, and here we have they're away from the presence of God. My conclusion is when you look at all the biblical data and you, you say, well, how does that work? Well, they're in His presence as far as wrath is concerned. They're, they're acknowledging His sovereign lordship, but they're certainly not experiencing any love, any mercy, any grace, any patience. They're away from any benefits. And Revelation chapter 20 also says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's referring to satanic beings, but in verse 15 of Revelation 20, it's talking about human beings experiencing the same thing. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 10 has us to know the lake of fire is the place where there's torment day and night forever and ever. Mark 9, 43 Jesus says it's an unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 48, he says it's the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Bad stuff, huh? Maybe this is an appropriate time to say, well, why, why is it forever? Why, why would God, He has the freedom to do it, but why would He make it last forever? And I'm not sure we can totally answer that question to a satisfactory level. But you can at least start thinking about the biblical data and coming to some decent conclusions, and you start realizing that, well, well He's God, the eternal righteous God, And you see something of the greatness of his person. And then you see something of the greatness of the offense against the greatness of the person. Sin, what is sin? Violation of God's holy standards, of his holy law. But at the very core, sin is going to be rebellion. It's it's going to be idolatry. It's self-worship. At the very core, because... Think this through. If God is God and there is no other, and He says, treat me like I'm God. Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we say, or even Adam, as our representative, says, I'll do what I want to do. Adam, in effect, is declaring war on God, saying, no, I'm God. Because I call the shots around here. That's a big violation. That's why I use the word cosmic treason so much. Treason, according to God's law, punishable by death. You want to become the captain of the ship? Try if you want to. I am God. And if you try to usurp my godhood, there'll be hell to pay. God, we can, we can start filling in the, in the blanks a little bit more, in the white spaces, and say, God made us as eternal beings, so we're going to live forever. He wouldn't have had to do it that way, but that's how He chose to do it. And you can start filling in some of the data and say, I guess this is why God does it this way. But at the end of the day, that's how it is. 
But the greatness of God needs to fill our understanding. And the greatness of the offense needs to help fill in our understanding. You see what the deal is? Pat doesn't understand just how sinful sin is. And, and you don't either. Every day that I sin and do whatever I want to do, it's a big deal. If there is a God who made me and said, I, and said, I want you to worship me with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself too. I'll admit to you, I've never done that before in my whole life. I know that even when I do the right things, I, I can't be doing them with absolute, pristine, perfect motives. I've declared war on God, and so have you. God, in his economy, in his world, in his universe, says when you do that, it's going to be eternal punishment for you. That's how it is. You say, I don't like being a creature. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of between a rock and a hard place. But God is so merciful to tell us about this. He's so kind and gracious to send his son and again say, listen to him. He wouldn't have had to do it. He could have just damned us all from the very beginning. That would be fair. And he gives us another day. He gives me another heartbeat. He gives me another breath. He gives friends. He gives a community around me to even help me with these things. This is is an amazing God. He's patient and long-suffering. And he's mostly amazing because he sends his son to be a perfect atonement for our sins. I want to end with two things for this morning. One would be more on the ethereal, mental understanding, building conviction, doctrinal fidelity, commitment level, and the other on a very personal level. First, please know, tried and true, water under the bridge, history is going to show us where we start compromising on the gospel specifically justification, that we're declared righteous in the eyes of God based upon the merits of Jesus, not on our own, okay? Where that gets tinkered with, where it gets watered down, where it gets meddled with, where it gets compromised, where we trim some of the hard edges off of the gospel, tried and true, something else is going to happen. We're going to compromise on justification. It's just a matter of time. If we haven't done it already, we will compromise on the doctrine of eternal punishment. It always happens. And so you can say, I smell a rat. When you hear people talking about, well, you know, I don't know how a loving God could damn someone forever. The rat you smell, I guarantee you, you're going to find a compromised gospel over here. It just always, I don't even know why it works that way. I have an idea, but it just always does. And you can even play it the other way, where we're hearing, you know what, I, I, I just, 
I'm not too sure that, you know, Jesus is the only way and, you know, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, you know, um, hell's going to go. It's just how it works. My take and guess on some reasoning behind that is because Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Think about the context of Romans 5 where we're in enemy status. That there's hostility between us and God and we have peace with God through the work of Christ having been justified, having been declared righteous before the eyes of God even though we're not righteous, having been declared righteous before God by faith, we have peace with God. That, 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 that's gospel truth. That's justification truth. But you know... Peace with God, context of without it we're enemies. You can see how hell fits into all this. Under the just condemnation of God, under the wrath of God, like Romans 5 talks about, we deserve to be condemned, we deserve to suffer, we deserve to have justice carried out in our lives. And then Jesus comes and he lives a perfectly righteous life. He obeys the Father perfectly for us, obeying God's holy law, fulfilling God's holy law. And then what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross and dies an awful, horrific, sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing death. Remember, before Jesus goes to the cross, he speaks in these terms and he says, Take the cup away. That Old Testament image, the cup of the wrath of God being poured out like we read about in Revelation chapter 14. It's going to be that bad. What happens on Calvary's cross is going to be that bad. He uses the same kind of terminology, terminology that's used of hell. Why? Because he's atoning, justly satisfying the condemnation that I deserve. He's absorbing the wrath of God. He's absorbing what would be the equivalent to an eternity in hell for me. There on the cross. It should just stagger our minds and trip our hearts and move our souls beyond anything else. I mean, on a certain level, how can you understand justification, gospel, greatness of God's love if you don't understand something of hell? Something of what we deserve. And that's where I'm saying, for those of you who are believers, starting with you, studying the doctrine of hell should cause your heart to swell with gratitude for Christ because of what He did. Now we're beyond the intellectual side of things. But once again, to underscore, where the gospel is compromised, hell's going to go. You don't need hell anymore. And where hell is compromised, you can be sure the gospel already has been or is going to be compromised. Here's what, it'll, be, it'll be like this. Maybe this helps. If hell really isn't so bad, we don't really need Christ to be so good. We really don't need the cross to be so powerful. And we start believing other theories of Christ's work. We don't believe in a substitutionary, vicarious atoning sacrifice. We say, we think Jesus was a good example. 
says, you know what? We don't need substitutionary atoning sacrifice. We just need a good example. And we start talking in terms like, well, you know, um, we're good. So just live up to your potential. And isn't it good that we're good? And isn't it good that we good people like a good Savior named Jesus? And He was good and we're good and God is good. Isn't that good? Lots of sermons like that. I kind of would like to preach a sermon like that. Because I like it when people like me. God is nice. Jesus is nice. We're nice. Isn't that nice? Let's have an offering. I mean, it's just the normal diet. But we had to change our view of Jesus and his work on the cross. And we had to change our view of justification to go down that road. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hell deserving, wrath deserving. He comes and he absorbs it for us. This is the love of God on display like never before. Like never before. That was conclusion part number one. And number two, on a personal level, I hope all that's been personal. I just want to go back to that statement that I echoed earlier from God speaking from heaven. At Jesus' baptism, where the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then He says, as you know, listen to Him. And my plea would be with you today, is that you would forget the stories, forget the illustrations, forget everything if necessary, and listen to Jesus who said the worm never dies there. The fire never goes out there. It's eternal there. Listen to Jesus. And you'll believe in hell. And then listen to Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary, worn out, heavy laden, burdened. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. How about rest from religion? How about rest from moralistic do-gooderism? How about rest from feeling so guilty because you'll never measure up to God's standards? Because you won't. How about rest from realizing and knowing maybe for the first time that the noose is around your neck and you deserve to go to hell like we all do? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's like Psalm 2.12. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Refuge in the sun. Lest his anger be kindled. And you perish in the way. 
kiss the Son. Listen to the Son. Trust in the Son as your perfect atoning sacrifice. He drank the cup full. Nothing left to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for the great, great Savior who is Christ the Lord. Open eyes, soften hearts, help us to look to Him and not to ourselves. That we would find ourselves rejoicing in the great work of Christ, not only living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death, but rising again victoriously from the grave. We are so glad as your people that even right now Jesus is seated seated at your right hand that he is interceding on our behalf. We're grateful that he didn't leave us here all alone until he returns, but he gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to convict us, to regenerate unbelievers, to illumine our minds so that we can understand these things. Lord, make us a worshiping people, a people who are grateful and glad, who do understand sin and who do understand hell, and that causes us to glory in the riches of Christ and His grace, that we would be a people not ashamed of the gospel, but with compassion and and zeal and love that we would be echoing the words of Jesus and pointing people to Him and not to ourselves or to our church or to this book or that book, that we would be pointing people to Christ, our righteousness. In His name we pray, amen.